Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Please visit www.audiblepodcast.com/castle for your free audiobook download. Podcastle episode 40 for the week of January 17th, 2009. Hell is the absence of God by Ted Chang. Hello, this is Rachel Swirsky, Podcastle's editor. Today's Podcastle is a giant episode. For listeners who may have joined us since our last one, Podcastle giants are stories that last more than an hour and air every three or four months. Today's giant is Hell is the Absence of God by Seattle-based author Ted Chang, the winner of an amazing number of awards, among them the Hugo, the Nebula, the Theodore Sturgeon Award, and the John W. Campbell Award. I recommend his excellent short story collection, Stories of Your Life and Others. Hell is the Absence of God is read by James Tremarco, author of the popular Escape Pod episode, How Lonesome a Life Without Nerve Gas. Since today's episode is long enough, I'll let you get straight to it. Enjoy the story! Hell is the Absence of God by Ted Chang This is the story of a man named Neil Fisk and how he came to love God. The pivotal event in Neil's life was an occurrence both terrible and ordinary, the death of his wife Sarah. Neil was consumed with grief after she died, a grief that was excruciating not only because of its intrinsic magnitude, but because it also renewed and emphasized the previous pains of his life. Her death forced him to re-examine his relationship with God, and in doing so, he began a journey that would change him forever. Neil was born with a congenital abnormality that caused his left thigh to be externally rotated and several inches shorter than his right. The medical term for it was proximal femoral focus deficiency. Most people he met assumed God was responsible for this, but Neil's mother hadn't witnessed any visitations while carrying him. His condition was the result of improper limb development during the sixth week of gestation, nothing more. In fact, as far as Neil's mother was concerned, blame rested with his absent father, whose income might have made corrective surgery a possibility, although she never expressed the sentiment aloud. As a child, Neil had occasionally wondered if he was being punished by God, but most of the time he blamed his classmates in school for his unhappiness, their nonchalant cruelty their instinctive ability to locate the weaknesses in a victim's emotional armor, the way their own friendships were reinforced by their sadism, he recognized these as examples of human behavior, not divine. And although his classmates often used God's name in their taunts, Neil knew better than to blame him for their actions. But while Neil avoided the pitfall of blaming God, he never made the jump to loving him. Nothing in his upbringing or his personality led him to pray to God for strength or for relief. The assorted trials he faced growing up were accidental or human in origin, and he relied on strictly human resources to counter them. He became an adult who, like so many others, viewed God's actions in the abstract until they impinged upon his own life. Angelic visitations were events that befell other people, reaching him only via reports on the nightly news. His own life was entirely mundane. He worked as a superintendent for an upscale apartment building, collecting rent and performing repairs, and as far as he was concerned, circumstances were fully capable of unfolding, happily or not, 
without intervention from above. This remained his experience until the death of his wife. It was an unexceptional visitation, smaller in magnitude than most, but no different in kind, bringing blessings to some and disaster to others. In this instance, the angel was Nathaniel, making an appearance in a downtown shopping district. Four miracle cures were effected, the elimination of carcinomas in two individuals, the regeneration of the spinal cord in a paraplegic, and the restoration of sight to a recently blinded person. There were also two miracles that were not cures. A delivery van, whose driver had fainted at the sight of the angel, was halted before it could overrun a busy sidewalk. Another man was caught in a shaft of heaven's light when the angel departed, erasing his eyes but ensuring his devotion. Neil's wife, Sarah Fisk, had been one of the eight casualties. She was hit by flying glass when the angel's billowing curtain of flame shattered the storefront window of the cafe in which she was eating. She bled to death within minutes, and the other customers in the cafe, none of whom suffered even superficial injuries, could do nothing but listen to her cries of pain and fear, and eventually witness her soul's ascension toward heaven. Nathaniel hadn't delivered any specific message, the angel's parting words, which had boomed out across the entire visitation site, were the typical, Behold the power of the Lord. Of the eight casualties that day, three souls were accepted into heaven and five were not, a closer ratio than the average for deaths by all causes. Sixty-two people received medical treatment for injuries ranging from slight concussions to ruptured eardrums to burns requiring skin grafts. Total property damage was estimated at $8.1 million, all of it excluded by private insurance companies due to the cause. Scores of people became devout worshippers in the wake of the visitation, either out of gratitude or terror. Alas, Neil Fisk was not one of them. After a visitation, it's common for all the witnesses to meet as a group and discuss how their common experience has affected their lives. The witnesses of Nathaniel's latest visitation arranged such group meetings, and family members of those who had died were welcome, so Neil began attending. The meetings were held once a month in a basement room of a large church downtown. There were metal folding chairs arranged in rows, and in the back of the room was a table holding coffee and donuts. Everyone wore adhesive name tags made out in felt-tip pen. While waiting for the meetings to start, People would stand around, drinking coffee, talking casually. Most people Neil spoke to assumed his leg was a result of the visitation, and he had to explain that he wasn't a witness, but rather the husband of one of the casualties. This didn't bother him particularly. He was used to explaining about his leg. What did bother him was the tone of the meetings themselves, when participants spoke about their reaction to the visitation. Most of them talked about their newfound devotion to God, and they tried to persuade the bereaved that they should feel the same. Neil's reactions to such attempts at persuasion depended on who was making it. When it was an ordinary witness, he found it merely irritating. When someone who'd received a miracle cure told him to love God, he had to restrain an impulse to strangle the person. But what he found most disquieting of all was hearing the same suggestion from a man named Tony Crane. Tony's wife had died in the visitation too and he now projected an air of groveling with his every movement. In hushed, tearful tones, he explained how he had accepted his role as one of God's subjects, and he advised Neil to do likewise. 
Neil didn't stop attending the meetings. He felt that he somehow owed it to Sarah to stick with them. But he found another group to go to as well, one more compatible with his own feelings, a support group devoted to those who'd lost a loved one during a visitation and were angry at God because of it. They met every other week in a room at the local community center and talked about the grief and rage that boiled inside of them. All the attendees were generally sympathetic to one another, despite differences in their various attitudes toward God. Of those who'd been devout before their loss, some struggled with the task of remaining so, while others gave up their devotion without a second glance. Of those who'd never been devout, some felt their position had been validated, while others were faced with the near-impossible task of becoming devout now. Neil found himself, to his consternation, in this last category. Like every other non-devout person, Neil had never expended much energy on where his soul would end up. He'd always assumed his destination was hell, and he accepted that. That was the way of things, and hell, after all, was not physically worse than the mortal plane. It meant permanent exile from God, no more and no less. The truth of this was plain for anyone to see on those occasions when hell manifested itself. These happened on a regular basis. The ground seemed to become transparent, and you could see hell as if you were looking through a hole in the floor. The lost souls looked no different than the living, their eternal bodies resembling mortal ones. You couldn't communicate with them. Their exile from God meant that they couldn't apprehend the mortal plane where his actions were still felt. But as long as the manifestation lasted, you could hear them talk, laugh, or cry, just as they had when they were alive. People varied widely in their reactions to these manifestations. Most devout people were galvanized, not by the sight of anything frightening, but at being reminded that eternity outside paradise was a possibility. Neo, by contrast, was one of those who were unmoved. As far as he could tell, the lost souls as a group were no unhappier than he was, their existence no worse than his in the mortal plane, and in some ways better. His eternal body would be unhampered by congenital abnormalities. Of course, everyone knew that heaven was incomparably superior, but to Neil it had always seemed too remote to consider, like wealth or fame or glamour. For people like him, hell was where you went when you died, and he saw no point in restructuring his life in hopes of avoiding that. And since God hadn't previously played a role in Neil's life, he wasn't afraid of being exiled from God. The prospect of living without interference, living in a world where windfalls and misfortunes were never by design, held no terror for him. Now that Sarah was in heaven, his situation had changed. Neil wanted more than anything to be reunited with her, and the only way to get to heaven was to love God with all his heart. This is Neil's story but telling it properly requires telling the stories of two other individuals whose paths became entwined with his. The first of these is Janice Riley. What people assumed about Neil had in fact happened to Janice. When Janice's mother was eight months pregnant with her, she lost control of the car she was driving and collided with the telephone pole during a sudden hailstorm, fists of ice dropping out of a clear blue sky and littering the road like a spill of giant ball bearings. She was sitting in her car, shaken but unhurt, when she saw a knot of silver flames, later identified as the angel Bardiel, 
float across the sky. The sight petrified her, but not so much that she didn't notice the peculiar settling sensation in her womb. A subsequent ultrasound revealed that the unborn Janice Riley no longer had legs. Flipper-like feet grew directly from her hip sockets. Janice's life might have gone the way of Neil's, if not for what happened two days after the ultrasound. Janice's parents were sitting at their kitchen table, crying and asking what they had done to deserve this, when they received a vision. The saved souls of four deceased relatives appeared before them, suffusing the kitchen with a golden glow. The saved never spoke, but their beatific smiles induced a feeling of serenity in whoever saw them. From that moment on, the Rileys were certain that their daughter's condition was not a punishment. As a result, Janice grew up thinking of her legless condition as a gift. Her parents explained that God had given her a special assignment because he considered her equal to the task, and she vowed that she would not let him down. Without pride or defiance, she saw it as her responsibility to show others that her condition did not indicate weakness, but rather strength. As a child, she was fully accepted by her schoolmates. When you're as pretty, confident, and charismatic as she was, children don't even notice that you're in a wheelchair. It was when she was a teenager that she realized that the able-bodied people in her school were not the ones who most needed convincing. It was more important for her to set an example for other handicapped individuals, whether they had been touched by God or not, no matter where they lived. Janice began speaking before audiences, telling those with disabilities that they had the strength God required of them. Over time, she developed a reputation and a following. She made a living writing and speaking and established a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting her message. People sent her letters thanking her for changing their lives and receiving those gave her a sense of fulfillment of a sort that Neil had never experienced. This was Janice's life up until she herself witnessed a visitation by the angel Rachel. She was letting herself into her house when the tremors began. At first she thought they were of natural origin, although she didn't live in a geologically active area, and waited in the doorway for them to subside. Several seconds later she caught a glimpse of silver in the sky and realized it was an angel, just before she lost consciousness. Janice awoke to the biggest surprise of her life, the sight of her two new legs, long, muscular, and fully functional. She was startled the first time she stood up. She was taller than she expected. Balancing at such a height without the use of her arms was unnerving, and simultaneously feeling the texture of the ground through the soles of her feet made it positively bizarre. Rescue workers, finding her wandering down the street dazedly, thought she was in shock until she, marveling at her ability to face them at eye level, explained to them what had happened. When statistics were gathered for the visitation, the restoration of Janice's legs was recorded as a blessing, and she was humbly grateful for her good fortune. It was at the first of the support group meetings that a feeling of guilt began to creep in. There Janice met two individuals with cancer who'd witnessed Rachel's visitation, thought their cure was at hand, and been bitterly disappointed when they realized they'd been passed over. Janice found herself wondering, why had she received a blessing when they had not? Janice's family and friends considered the restoration of her legs a reward for excelling at the task God had set for her. But for Janice, 
This interpretation raised another question. Did he intend for her to stop? Surely not. Evangelism provided the central direction of her life, and there was no limit to the number of people who needed to hear her message. Her continuing to preach was the best action she could take, both for herself and for others. Her reservations grew during her first speaking engagement after the visitation, before an audience of people recently paralyzed and now wheelchair-bound. Janice delivered her usual words of inspiration, assuring them that they had the strength needed for the challenges ahead. It was during the Q&A that she was asked if the restoration of her legs meant she had passed her test. Janice didn't know what to say. She could hardly promise them that one day their marks would be erased. In fact, she realized, any implication that she'd been rewarded could be interpreted as criticism of others who remained afflicted, and she didn't want that. All she could tell them was that she didn't know why she'd been cured, but it was obvious they found that an unsatisfying answer. Janice returned home disquieted. She still believed in her message, but as far as her audiences were concerned, she'd lost her greatest source of credibility. How could she inspire others who were touched by God to see their condition as a badge of strength when she no longer shared their condition? She considered whether this might be a challenge, a test of her ability to spread his word. Clearly God had made her task more difficult than it was before. Perhaps the restoration of her legs was an obstacle for her to overcome, just as their earlier removal had been. This interpretation failed her at her next scheduled engagement. The audience was a group of witnesses to a visitation by Nathaniel. She was often invited to speak to such groups in the hopes that those who suffered might draw encouragement from her. Rather than sidestep the issue, she began with an account of the visitation she herself had recently experienced. She explained that while it might appear she was a beneficiary, she was in fact facing her own challenge. Like them, she was being forced to draw on resources previously untapped. She realized, too late, that she had said the wrong thing. A man in the audience with a misshapen leg stood up and challenged her. Was she seriously suggesting that the restoration of her legs was comparable to the loss of his wife? Could she really be equating her trials with his own? Janice immediately assured him that she wasn't, and that she couldn't imagine the pain he was experiencing. But, she said, it wasn't God's intention that everyone be subjected to the same kind of trial, but only that each person face his or her own trial, whatever it might be. The difficulty of any trial was subjective, and there was no way to compare two individuals' experiences, and just as those whose suffering seemed greater than his should have compassion for him, so he should have compassion for those whose suffering seemed less. The man was having none of it. She had received what anyone else would have considered a fantastic blessing, and she was complaining about it. He stormed out of the meeting while Janice was still trying to explain. That man, of course, was Neil Fisk. Neil had had Janice Riley's name mentioned to him for much of his life, most often by people who were convinced his misshapen leg was a sign from God. These people cited her as an example he should follow, telling him that her attitude was the proper response to a physical handicap. Neil couldn't deny that her leglessness was a far worse condition than his distorted femur. Unfortunately, he found her attitude so foreign that, even in the best of times, he'd never been able to learn anything from her. Now, in the depths of his grief and mystified as to why she had received a gift she didn't need, 
Neil found her words offensive. In the days that followed, Janice found herself more and more plagued by doubts, unable to decide what the restoration of her legs meant. Was she being ungrateful for a gift she'd received? Was it both a blessing and a test? Perhaps it was a punishment, an indication that she had not performed her duty well enough. There were many possibilities, and she didn't know which one to believe. There is one other person who played an important role in Neil's story, even though he and Neil did not meet until Neil's journey was nearly over. That person's name is Ethan Mead. Ethan had been raised in a family that was devout, but not profoundly so. His parents credited God with their above-average health and their comfortable economic status, even though they hadn't witnessed any visitations or received any visions. They simply trusted that God was, directly or indirectly, responsible for their good fortune. Their devotion had never been put to any serious test and might not have withstood one. Their love for God was based in their satisfaction with the status quo. Ethan was not like his parents, though. Ever since childhood, he'd felt certain that God had a special role for him to play, and he waited for a sign telling him what that role was. He'd like to have become a preacher, but felt he hadn't any compelling testimony to offer. His vague feelings of expectation weren't enough. He longed for an encounter with the divine to provide him with direction. He could have gone to one of the holy sites, those places where, for reasons unknown, angelic visitations occurred on a regular basis. But he felt that such an action would be presumptuous of him. The holy sites were usually the last resort of the desperate, those people seeking either a miracle cure to repair their bodies, or a glimpse of heaven's light to repair their souls, and Ethan was not desperate. He decided that he'd been set along his own course, and in time the reason for it would become clear. While waiting for that day, he lived his life as best he could. He worked as a librarian, married a woman named Claire, raised two children. All the while, he remained watchful for signs of a greater destiny. Ethan was certain his time had come when he became witness to a visitation by Rachel, the same visitation that, miles away, restored Janice Riley's legs. Ethan was by himself when it happened. He was walking toward his car in the center of a parking lot when the ground began to shudder. Instinctively, he knew it was a visitation, and he assumed a kneeling position, feeling no fear, only exhilaration and awe at the prospect of learning his calling. The ground became still after a minute, and Ethan looked around, but didn't otherwise move. Only after waiting for several more minutes did he rise to his feet. There was a large crack in the asphalt, beginning directly in front of him and following a meandering path down the street. The crack seemed to be pointing him in a specific direction, so he ran alongside it for several blocks until he encountered other survivors, a man and a woman climbing out of a modest fissure that had opened up directly beneath them. He waited with the two of them until rescuers arrived and brought them to a shelter. Ethan attended the support group meetings that followed and met the other witnesses to Rachel's visitation. Over the course of a few meetings, he became aware of certain patterns among the witnesses. Of course, there were those who'd been injured and those who'd received miracle cures, but there were also those whose lives were changed in other ways. The man and woman he'd first met fell in love and were soon engaged. A woman who'd been pinned beneath a collapsed wall was inspired to become an EMT after being rescued. 
One business owner formed an alliance that averted her impending bankruptcy, while another whose business was destroyed saw it as a message that he changed his ways. It seemed that everyone except Ethan had found a way to understand what had happened to them. He hadn't been cursed or blessed in any obvious way, and he didn't know what message he was intended to receive. His wife Claire suggested that he consider the visitation a reminder that he appreciate what he had, but Ethan found that unsatisfying, reasoning that every visitation, no matter where it occurred, served that function, and the fact that he'd witnessed a visitation firsthand had to have greater significance. His mind was preyed upon by the idea that he'd missed an opportunity, that there was a fellow witness whom he was intended to meet but hadn't. This visitation had to be the sign he'd been waiting for. He couldn't just disregard it, but that didn't tell him what he was supposed to do. Ethan eventually resorted to the process of elimination. He got hold of a list of all the witnesses and crossed off those who had a clear interpretation of their experience, reasoning that one of those remaining must be the person whose fate was somehow intertwined with his. Among those who were confused or uncertain about the visitation's meaning would be the one he was intended to meet. When he had finished crossing names off his list, there was only one left, Janice Riley. In public, Neil was able to mask his grief as adults are expected to, but in the privacy of his apartment, the floodgates of emotion burst open. The awareness of Sarah's absence would overwhelm him, and then he'd collapse on the floor and weep. He'd curl up into a ball, his body racked by hiccuping sobs, tears and mucus streaming down his face, the anguish coming in ever-increasing waves until it was more than he could bear, more intense than he'd have believed possible. Minutes or hours later it would leave and he would fall asleep exhausted, and the next morning he would wake up and face the prospect of another day without Sarah. An elderly woman in Neil's apartment building tried to comfort him by telling him that the pain would lessen in time, and while he would never forget his wife, he would at least be able to move on. Then he would meet someone else one day and find happiness with her, and he would learn to love God and thus ascend to heaven when his time came. This woman's intentions were good, but Neil was in no position to find any comfort in her words. Sarah's absence felt like an open wound, and the prospect that someday he would no longer feel pain at her loss seemed not just remote but a physical impossibility. If suicide would have ended his pain, he'd have done it without hesitation, but that would only ensure that his separation from Sarah was permanent. The topic of suicide regularly came up at the support group meetings and inevitably led to someone mentioning Robin Pearson, a woman who used to come to the meeting several months before Neil began attending. Robin's husband had been afflicted with stomach cancer during a visitation by the angel Macatio. She stayed in his hospital room for days at a stretch, only for him to die unexpectedly when she was home doing laundry. A nurse who'd been present told Robin that his soul had ascended and so Robin had begun attending the support group meetings. Many months later, Robin came to the meeting shaking with rage. There had been a manifestation of hell near her house, and she'd seen her husband among the lost souls. She'd confronted the nurse, who admitted to lying in the hopes that Robin would learn to love God, so that at least she would be saved even if her husband hadn't been. Robin wasn't at the next meeting, and at the meeting after that, the group learned she had committed suicide 
to rejoin her husband. None of them knew the status of Robin's and her husband's relationship in the afterlife, but successes were known to happen. Some couples had indeed been happily reunited through suicide. The support group had attendees whose spouses had descended to hell, and they talked about being torn between wanting to remain alive and wanting to rejoin their spouses. Neil wasn't in their situation, but his first response when listening to them had been envy. If Sarah had gone to hell, suicide would be the solution to all his problems. This led to a shameful self-knowledge for Neil. He realized that if he had to choose between going to hell while Sarah went to heaven, or having both of them go to hell together, he would choose the latter. He would rather she be exiled from God than separated from him. He knew it was selfish, but he couldn't change how he felt. He believed Sarah could be happy in either place, but he could only be happy with her. Neil's previous experiences with women had never been good. All too often he'd begin flirting with a woman while sitting at a bar, only to have her remember an appointment elsewhere the moment he stood up and his shortened leg came into view. Once a woman he'd been dating for several weeks broke off the relationship, explaining that while she herself didn't consider his leg a defect, whenever they were seen in public together other people assumed there must be something wrong with her for being with him, and surely he could understand how unfair that was to her. Sarah had been the first woman Neil met whose demeanor hadn't changed one bit, whose expression hadn't flickered toward pity or horror or even surprise when she first saw his leg. For that reason alone, it was predictable that Neil would become infatuated with her. By the time he saw all the sides of her personality, he'd completely fallen in love with her. And because his best qualities came out when he was with her, she fell in love with him, too. Neil had been surprised when Sarah told him she was devout. There weren't many signs of her devotion. She didn't go to church, sharing Neil's dislike for the attitudes of most people who attended but in her own quiet way she was grateful to God for her life. She never tried to convert Neil, saying that devotion would come from within or not at all. They rarely had any cause to mention God, and most of the time it would have been easy for Neil to imagine that Sarah's views on God matched his own. This is not to say that Sarah's devotion had no effect on Neil. On the contrary, Sarah was far and away the best argument for loving God that he had ever encountered. If love of God had contributed to making her the person she was, then perhaps it did make sense. During the years that the two of them were married, his outlook on life improved, and it probably would have reached the point where he was thankful to God if he and Sarah had grown old together. Sarah's death removed that particular possibility, but it needn't have closed the door on Neil's loving God. Neil could have taken it as a reminder that no one can count on having decades left. He could have been moved by the realization that, had he died with her, his soul would have been lost and the two of them separated for eternity. He could have seen Sarah's death as a wake-up call, telling him to love God while he still had the chance. Instead, Neil became actively resentful of God. Sarah had been the greatest blessing of his life and God had taken her away. Now he was expected to love him for it? For Neil, it was like having a kidnapper demand love as ransom for his wife's return. Obedience he might have managed, but sincere, heartfelt love? That was a ransom he couldn't pay. This paradox confronted several people in the support group. One of the attendees, a man named Phil Soames, 
correctly pointed out that thinking of it as a condition to be met would guarantee failure. You couldn't love God as a means to an end. You had to love him for himself. If your ultimate goal in loving God was a reunion with your spouse, you weren't demonstrating true devotion at all. A woman in the support group named Valerie Tomasino said they shouldn't even try. She'd been reading a book published by the humanist movement. Its members considered it wrong to love a God who inflicted such pain and advocated that people act according to their own moral sense instead of being guided by the carrot and the stick. These were people who, when they died, descended to hell in proud defiance of God. Neil himself had read a pamphlet of the humanist movement. What he most remembered was that it had quoted the fallen angels. Visitations of fallen angels were infrequent and caused neither good fortune nor bad. They weren't acting under God's direction, but just passing through the mortal plane as they went about their unimaginable business. On the occasions they appeared, people would ask them questions. Did they know God's intentions? Why had they rebelled? The fallen angel's reply was always the same. Decide for yourselves. That is what we did. We advise you to do the same. Those in the humanist movement had decided, and if it weren't for Sarah, Neil would have made the identical choice. But he wanted her back, and the only way was to find a reason to love God. Looking for any footing on which to build their devotion, some attendees of the support group took comfort in the fact that their loved ones hadn't suffered when God took them, but instead died instantly. Neil didn't even have that. Sarah had received horrific lacerations when the glass hit her. Of course it could have been worse. One couple's teenage son had been trapped in a fire ignited by an angel's visitation and received full thickness burns over 80% of his body before rescue workers could free him. His eventual death was a mercy. Sarah had been fortunate by comparison, but not enough to make Neil love God. Neil could think of only one thing that would make him give thanks to God, and that was if he allowed Sarah to appear before him. It would give him immeasurable comfort just to see her smile again. He'd never been visited by a saved soul before, and a vision now would have meant more to him than at any other point in his life. But visions don't appear just because a person needs one, and none ever came to Neil. He had to find his own way toward God. The next time he attended the support group meeting for witnesses of Nathaniel's visitation, Neil sought out Benny Vasquez, the man whose eyes had been erased by heaven's light. Benny didn't always attend because he was now being invited to speak at other meetings. Few visitations resulted in an eyeless person, since heaven's light entered the mortal plane only in the brief moments that an angel emerged from or re-entered heaven, so the eyeless were minor celebrities and in demand as speakers to church groups. Benny was now as sightless as any burrowing worm. Not only were his eyes and sockets missing, his skull lacked even the space for such features, the cheekbones now abutting the forehead. The light that had brought his soul as close to perfection as was possible in the mortal plane had also deformed his body. It was commonly held that this illustrated the superfluity of physical bodies in heaven. With the limited expressive capacity his face retained, Benny always wore a blissful, rapturous smile. Neil hoped Benny could say something to help him love God. Benny described heaven's light as infinitely beautiful, a sight of such compelling majesty 
that it vanquished all doubts. It constituted incontrovertible proof that God should be loved, an explanation that made it as obvious as one plus one equals two. Unfortunately, while Benny could offer many analogies for the effect of heaven's light, he couldn't duplicate that effect with his own words. Those who were already devout found Benny's descriptions thrilling, but to Neil, they seemed frustratingly vague. So he looked elsewhere for counsel. Accept the mystery, said the minister of the local church. If you can love God even though your questions go unanswered, you'll be the better for it. Admit that you need him, said the popular book of spiritual advice he bought. When you realize that self-sufficiency is an illusion, you'll be ready. Submit yourself completely and utterly, said the preacher on the television. Receiving torment is how you prove your love. Acceptance may not bring you relief in this life, but resistance will only worsen your punishment. All of these strategies have proven successful for different individuals. Any one of them, once internalized, can bring a person to devotion. But these are not always easy to adopt, and Neil was one who found them impossible. Neil finally tried talking to Sarah's parents, which was an indication of how desperate he was. His relationship with them had always been tense. While they loved Sarah, they often chided her for not being demonstrative enough in her devotion, and they'd been shocked when she married a man who wasn't devout at all. For her part, Sarah had always considered her parents too judgmental, and their disapproval of Neil only reinforced her opinion. But now Neil felt he had something in common with them. After all, they were all mourning Sarah's loss, and so he visited them in their suburban colonial, hoping they could help him in his grief. How wrong he was. Instead of sympathy, what Neil got from Sarah's parents was blame for her death. They'd come to this conclusion in the weeks after Sarah's funeral. They reasoned that she'd been taken to send him a message, and that they were forced to endure her loss solely because he hadn't been devout. They were now convinced that, his previous explanations notwithstanding, Neil's deformed leg was in fact God's doing, and if only he'd been properly chastened by it, Sarah might still be alive. Their reaction shouldn't have come as a surprise. Throughout Neil's life, people had attributed moral significance to his leg, even though God wasn't responsible for it. Now that he'd suffered a misfortune for which God was unambiguously responsible, it was inevitable that someone would assume he deserved it. It was purely by chance that Neil heard this sentiment when he was at his most vulnerable, and it could have the greatest impact on him. Neil didn't think his in-laws were right, but he began to wonder if he might not be better off if he did. Perhaps he thought it'd be better to live in a story where the righteous were rewarded and the sinners were punished, even if the criteria for righteousness and sinfulness eluded him, than to live in a reality where there was no justice at all. It would mean casting himself in the role of the sinner, so it was hardly a comforting lie. But it offered one reward that his own ethics couldn't, believing it would reunite him with Sarah. Sometimes even bad advice can point a man in the right direction. It was in this manner that his in-law's accusations ultimately pushed Neil closer to God. More than once when she was evangelizing, Janice had been asked if she ever wished she had legs, and she had always answered, honestly, no, she didn't. She was content as she was. Sometimes her questioner would point out that she couldn't miss what she'd never known and she might feel differently if she'd been born with legs and lost them later on. Janice never denied that. 
but she could truthfully say she felt no sense of being incomplete, no envy for people with legs. Being legless was part of her identity. She'd never bothered with prosthetics, and had a surgical procedure been available to provide her with legs, she'd have turned it down. She had never considered the possibility that God might restore her legs. One of the unexpected side effects of having legs was the increased attention she received from men. In the past, she'd mostly attracted men with amputee fetishes or sainthood complexes. Now all sorts of men seemed drawn to her. So when she first noticed Ethan Mead's interest in her, she thought it was romantic in nature. This possibility was particularly distressing since he was obviously married. Ethan had begun talking to Janice at the support group meetings and then began attending her public speaking engagements. It was when he suggested they have lunch together that Janice asked him about his intentions, and he explained his theory. He didn't know how his fate was intertwined with hers. He knew only that it was. She was skeptical, but she didn't reject his theory outright. Ethan admitted that he didn't have answers for her own questions, but he was eager to do anything he could to help her find them. Janice cautiously agreed to help him in his search for meaning, and Ethan promised that he wouldn't be a burden. They met on a regular basis and talked about the significance of visitations. Meanwhile, Ethan's wife Claire grew worried. Ethan assured her that he had no romantic feelings toward Janice, but that didn't alleviate her concerns. She knew that extreme circumstances could create a bond between individuals, and she feared that Ethan's relationship with Janice, romantic or not, would threaten their marriage. Ethan suggested to Janice that he, as a librarian, could help her do some research. Neither of them had ever heard of a previous instance where God had left his mark on a person in one visitation and removed it in another. Ethan looked for previous examples in hopes that they might shed some light on Janice's situation. There were a few instances of individuals receiving multiple miracle cures over their lifetimes, but their illnesses or disabilities had always been of natural origin, not given to them in a visitation. There was one anecdotal report of a man being struck blind for his sins, changing his ways, and later having his sight restored, but it was classified as an urban legend. Even if that account had a basis in truth, it didn't provide a useful precedent for Janice's situation. Her legs had been removed before her birth, and so it couldn't have been a punishment for anything she'd done. Was it possible that Janice's condition had been a punishment for something her mother or father had done? Could her restoration mean they had finally earned her cure? She couldn't believe that. If her deceased relatives were to appear in a vision, Janice would have been reassured about the restoration of her legs. The fact that they didn't made her suspect something was amiss, but she didn't believe that it was a punishment. Perhaps it had been a mistake, and she'd received a miracle meant for someone else. Perhaps it was a test, to see how she would respond to being given too much. In either case, there seemed only one course of action. She would, with utmost gratitude and humility, offer to return her gift. To do so, she would go on a pilgrimage. Pilgrims traveled great distances to visit the holy sites and wait for a visitation, hoping for a miracle cure. Whereas in most of the world, one could wait an entire lifetime and never experience a visitation, at a holy site, one might only wait months, sometimes weeks. Pilgrims knew that the odds of being cured were still poor. Of those who stayed long enough to witness a visitation, the majority did not receive a cure. But they were often happy just to have seen an angel 
and they returned home better able to face what awaited them, whether it be imminent death or life with a crippling disability. And of course, just living through a visitation made many people appreciate their situations. Invariably, a small number of pilgrims were killed during each visitation. Janice was willing to accept the outcome, whatever it was. If God saw fit to take her, she was ready. If God removed her legs again, she would resume the work she'd always done. If God let her legs remain, she hoped she would receive the epiphany she needed to speak with conviction about her gift. She hoped, however, that her miracle would be taken back and given to someone who truly needed it. She didn't suggest to anyone that they accompany her in hopes of receiving the miracle she was returning, feeling that that would have been presumptuous, but she privately considered her pilgrimage a request on behalf of those who were in need. Her friends and family were confused at Janice's decision, seeing it as questioning God. As word spread, she received many letters from followers, variously expressing dismay, bafflement, and admiration for her willingness to make such a sacrifice. As for Ethan, he was completely supportive of Janice's decision and excited for himself. He now understood the significance of Rachel's visitation for him. It indicated that the time had come for him to act. His wife Claire strenuously opposed his leaving, pointing out that he had no idea how long he might be away and that she and their children needed him too. It grieved him to go without her support, but he had no choice. Ethan would go on a pilgrimage, and at the next visitation, he would learn what God intended for him. Neil's visit to Sarah's parents caused him to give further thought to his conversation with Benny Vasquez. While he hadn't gotten a lot out of Benny's words, he'd been impressed by the absoluteness of Benny's devotion. No matter what misfortune befell him in the future, Benny's love of God would never waver, and he would ascend to heaven when he died. That offered Neil a very slim opportunity, one that had seemed so unattractive he hadn't considered it before, but now, as he was growing more desperate, it was beginning to look expedient. Every holy site had its pilgrims who, rather than looking for a miracle cure, deliberately sought out heaven's light. Those who saw it were always accepted into heaven when they died, no matter how selfish their motives had been. There were some who wished to have their ambivalence removed so they could be reunited with their loved ones, and others who'd always lived a sinful life and wanted to escape the consequences. In the past, there'd been some doubt as to whether heaven's light could indeed overcome all the spiritual obstacles to becoming saved. The debate ended after the case of Barry Larson, a serial rapist and murderer who, while disposing of the body of his latest victim, witnessed an angel's visitation and saw heaven's light. At Larson's execution, his soul was seen ascending to heaven, much to the outrage of his victim's families. Priests tried to console them, assuring them, on the basis of no evidence whatsoever, that heaven's light must have subjected Larson to many lifetimes' worth of penance in a moment, but their words provided little comfort. For Neil this offered a loophole, an answer to Phil Soam's objection. It was the one way that he could love Sarah more than he loved God, and still be reunited with her. It was how he could be selfish and still get into heaven. Others had done it, perhaps he could too. It might not be just, but at least it was predictable. At an instinctual level, Neil was averse to the idea. It sounded like undergoing brainwashing as a cure for depression. 
He couldn't help but think that it would change his personality so drastically that he'd cease to be himself. Then he remembered that everyone in heaven had undergone a similar transformation. The saved were just like the eyeless, except that they no longer had bodies. This gave Neil a clearer image of what he was working toward. No matter whether he became devout by seeing heaven's light or by a lifetime of effort, any ultimate reunion with Sarah couldn't recreate what they'd shared in the mortal plane. In heaven, they would both be different, and their love for each other would be mixed with the love that all the saved felt for everything. This realization didn't diminish Neil's longing for a reunion with Sarah. In fact, it sharpened his desire, because it meant that the reward would be the same no matter what means he used to achieve it. The shortcut led to precisely the same destination as the conventional path. On the other hand, seeking heaven's light was far more difficult than an ordinary pilgrimage, and far more dangerous. Heaven's light leaked through only when an angel entered or left the mortal plane, and since there was no way to predict where an angel would first appear, light seekers had to converge on the angel after its arrival and follow it until its departure. To maximize their chances of being in the narrow shaft of heaven's light, they followed the angel as closely as possible during its visitation. Depending on the angel involved, this might mean staying alongside the funnel of a tornado, the wave front of a flash flood, or the expanding tip of a chasm as it split apart the landscape. Far more light seekers died in the attempt than succeeded. Statistics about the souls of failed light seekers were difficult to compile, since there were few witnesses to such expeditions, but the numbers so far were not encouraging. In sharp contrast to ordinary pilgrims who died without receiving their sought-after cure, of which roughly half were admitted into heaven, every single failed light seeker had descended to hell. Perhaps only people who were already lost ever considered seeking heaven's light, or perhaps death in such circumstances was considered suicide. In any case, it was clear to Neil that he needed to be ready to accept the consequences of embarking on such an attempt. The entire idea had an all-or-nothing quality to it that Neil found both frightening and attractive. He found the prospect of going on with his life, trying to love God, increasingly maddening. He might try for decades and not succeed. He might not even have that long, as he'd been reminded so often lately, visitations served as a warning to prepare one's soul because death might come at any time. He could die tomorrow, and there was no chance of his becoming devout in the near future by conventional means. It's perhaps ironic that, given his history of not following Janice Riley's example, Neil took notice when she reversed her position. He was eating breakfast when he happened to see an item in the newspaper about her plans for a pilgrimage, and his immediate reaction was anger. How many blessings would it take to satisfy that woman? After considering it more, he decided that if she, having received a blessing, deemed it appropriate to seek God's assistance in coming to terms with it, then there was no reason that he, having received such terrible misfortune, shouldn't do the same. And that was enough to tip him over the edge. Holy sites were invariably in inhospitable places. One was an atoll in the middle of the ocean, while another was in the mountains at an elevation of 20,000 feet. The one that Neil traveled to was in a desert, an expanse of cracked mud reaching miles in every direction. It was desolate, but it was relatively accessible and thus popular among pilgrims. The appearance of the holy site was an object lesson in what happened 
when the celestial and terrestrial realms touched. The landscape was variously scarred by lava flows, gaping fissures, and impact craters. Vegetation was scarce and ephemeral, restricted to growing in the interval after soil was deposited by floodwaters and whirlwinds and before it was scoured away again. Pilgrims took up residence all over the site, forming temporary villages with their tents and camper vans. They all made guesses as to what location would maximize their chances of seeing the angel while minimizing the risk of injury or death. Some protection was offered by curved banks of sandbags, left over from years past and rebuilt as needed. A site-specific paramedic and fire department ensured that paths were kept clear so rescue vehicles could go where they were needed. Pilgrims either brought their own food and water or purchased them from vendors charging exorbitant prices. Everyone paid a fee to cover the cost of waste removal. Light seekers always had off-road vehicles to better cross rough terrain when it came time to follow the angel. Those who could afford it drove alone. Those who couldn't formed groups of two or three or four. Neil didn't want to be a passenger reliant on another person, nor did he want the responsibility of driving anyone else. This might be his final act on earth, and he felt he should do it alone. The cost of Sarah's funeral had depleted their savings, so Neil sold all his possessions in order to purchase a suitable vehicle, a pickup truck equipped with aggressively knurled tires and heavy-duty shock absorbers. As soon as he arrived, Neil started doing what all the other light seekers did, crisscrossing the site in his vehicle, trying to familiarize himself with its topography. It was on one of his drives around the site perimeter that he met Ethan, Ethan flagged him down after his own car had stalled on his return from the nearest grocery store, 80 miles away. Neil helped him get his car started again and then, at Ethan's insistence, followed him back to his campsite for dinner. Janice wasn't there when they arrived, having gone to visit some pilgrims several tents over. Neil listened politely while Ethan, heating prepackaged meals over a bottle of propane, began describing the events that had brought him to the holy site. When Ethan mentioned Janice Riley's name, Neil couldn't mask his surprise. He had no desire to speak with her again, and immediately excused himself to leave. He was explaining to a puzzled Ethan that he'd forgotten a previous engagement when Janice arrived. She was startled to see Neil there, but asked him to stay. Ethan explained why he'd invited Neil to dinner, and Janice told him where she and Neil had met. Then she asked Neil what had brought him to the holy site. When he told them he was a light seeker, Ethan and Janice immediately tried to persuade him to reconsider his plans. He might be committing suicide, said Ethan, and there were always better alternatives than suicide. Seeing heaven's light was not the answer, said Janice. That wasn't what God wanted. Neil stiffly thanked them for their concern and left. During the weeks of waiting, Neil spent every day driving around the site. Maps were available and were updated after each visitation, but they were no substitute for driving the terrain yourself. On occasion, he would see a light seeker who was obviously experienced in off-road driving and ask him, the vast majority of the light seekers were men, for tips on negotiating a specific type of terrain. Some had been at the site for several visitations, having neither succeeded or failed at their previous attempts. They were glad to share tips on how best to pursue an angel, but never offered any personal information about themselves. Neil found the tone of their conversation peculiar, simultaneously hopeful and hopeless, and wondered if he sounded the same. Ethan and Janice passed the time by getting to know some of the other pilgrims. 
The reactions to Janice's situation were mixed. Some thought her ungrateful, while others thought her generous. Most found Ethan's story interesting, since he was one of the very few pilgrims seeking something other than a miracle cure. For the most part, there was a feeling of camaraderie that sustained them during the long wait. Neil was driving around in his truck when dark clouds began coalescing in the southeast, and the word came over the CB radio that a visitation had begun. He stopped the vehicle to insert earplugs into his ears and don his helmet. By the time he was finished, flashes of lightning were visible, and a light seeker near the angel reported that it was Barachiel, and it appeared to be moving due north. Neil turned his truck east in anticipation and began driving at full speed. There was no rain or wind, only dark clouds from which lightning emerged. Over the radio, other light seekers relayed estimates of the angel's direction and speed, and Neil headed northeast to get in front of it. At first, he could gauge his distance from the storm by counting how long it took for the thunder to arrive, but soon the lightning bolts were striking so frequently that he couldn't match up the sounds with the individual strikes. He saw the vehicles of two other light seekers converging. They began driving in parallel, heading north, over a heavily cratered section of ground, bouncing over small ones and swerving to avoid the larger ones. Bolts of lightning were striking the ground everywhere, but they appeared to be radiating from a point south of Neil's position. The angel was directly behind him and closing. Even through his earplugs, the roar was deafening. Neil could feel his hair rising from his skin as the electric charge built up around him. He kept glancing in his rearview mirror, trying to ascertain where the angel was, while wondering how close he ought to get. His vision grew so crowded with after-images that it became difficult to distinguish actual bolts of lightning among them. Squinting at the dazzle in his mirror, he realized that he was looking at a continuous bolt of lightning, undulating but uninterrupted. He tilted the driver's side mirror upward to get a better look, and saw the source of the lightning bolt, a seething, writhing mass of flames, silver against the dusky clouds, the angel Barachiel. It was then, while Neil was transfixed and paralyzed by what he saw, that his pickup truck crested a sharp outcropping of rock and became airborne. The truck smashed into a boulder, the entire force of the impact concentrated on the vehicle's left front end, crumpling it like foil. The intrusion into the driver's compartment fractured both of Neil's legs and nicked his left femoral artery. Nick began, slowly but surely, bleeding to death. He didn't try to move. He wasn't in physical pain at the moment, but he somehow knew that the slightest movement would be excruciating. It was obvious that he was pinned in the truck, and there was no way he could pursue Barachiel even if he weren't. Helplessly, he watched the lightning storm move further and further away. As he watched it, Neil began crying. He was filled with a mixture of regret and self-contempt, cursing himself for ever thinking that such a scheme could succeed. He would have begged for the opportunity to do it over again, promised to spend the rest of his days learning to love God. If only he could live, but he knew that no bargaining was possible, and he had only himself to blame. He apologized to Sarah for losing his chance at being reunited with her, for throwing his life away on a gamble instead of playing it safe. He prayed that she understood that he'd been motivated by his love for her, and that she would forgive him. Through his tears he saw a woman running toward him, and recognized her as Janice Riley. He realized his truck had crashed no more than a hundred yards from her and Ethan's campsite. 
There was nothing she could do, though. He could feel the blood draining out of him, and knew that he wouldn't live long enough for a rescue vehicle to arrive. He thought Janice was calling to him, but his ears were ringing too badly for him to hear anything. He could see Ethan Meade behind her, also starting to run toward him. Then there was a flash of light, and Janice was knocked off her feet as if she'd been struck by a sledgehammer. At first he thought she'd been hit by lightning, but then he realized that the lightning had already ceased. It was when she stood up again that he saw her face, steam rising from newly featureless skin, and he realized that Janice had been struck by heaven's light. Neil looked up, but all he saw were clouds. The shaft of light was gone. It seemed as if God were taunting him, not only by showing him the prize he'd lost his life trying to acquire while still holding it out of reach, but also by giving it to someone who didn't need it or even want it. God had already wasted a miracle on Janice, and now he was doing it again. It was at that moment that another beam of heaven's light penetrated the cloud cover and struck Neil, trapped in his vehicle. Like a thousand hypodermic needles, the light punctured his flesh and scraped across his bones. The light unmade his eyes, turning him into not a formerly sighted being, but a being never intended to possess vision. And in doing so, the light revealed to Neil all the reasons he should love God. He loved him with an utterness beyond what humans can experience for one another. To say it was unconditional was inadequate, because even the word unconditional required the concept of a condition, and such an idea was no longer comprehensible to him. Every phenomenon in the universe was nothing less than an explicit reason to love him. No circumstance could be an obstacle or even an irrelevancy, but only another reason to be grateful, a further inducement to love. Neil thought of the grief that had driven him to suicidal recklessness and the pain and terror that Sarah had experienced before she died, and still he loved God, not in spite of their suffering, but because of it. He renounced all his previous anger and ambivalence and desire for answers. He was grateful for all the pain he'd endured, contrite for not previously recognizing it as the gift it was, euphoric that he was now being granted this insight into his true purpose. He understood how life was an undeserved bounty, how even the most virtuous were not worthy of the glories of the mortal plane. For him the mystery was solved, because he understood that everything in life is love, even pain, especially pain. So minutes later, when Neil finally bled to death, he was truly worthy of salvation, and God sent him to hell anyway. Ethan saw all of this. He saw Neil and Janice remade by heaven's light, and he saw the pious love on their eyeless faces. He saw the skies become clear and the sunlight return. He was holding Neil's hand, waiting for the paramedics, when Neil died. And he saw Neil's soul leave his body, rise toward heaven, only to descend into hell. Janice didn't see it, for by then her eyes were already gone. Ethan was the sole witness, and he realized that this was God's purpose for him, to follow Janice Riley to this point and to see what she could not. When statistics were compiled for Barakio's visitation, it turned out there had been a total of ten casualties, six among light seekers and four among ordinary pilgrims. Nine pilgrims received miracle cures. The only individuals to see heaven's light were Janice and Neil. 
There were no statistics regarding how many pilgrims had felt their lives changed by the visitation, but Ethan counted himself among them. Upon returning home, Janice resumed her evangelism, but the topic of her speeches has changed. She no longer speaks about how the physically handicapped have the resources to overcome their limitations. Instead, she, like the other Eilis, speaks about the unbearable beauty of God's creation. Many who used to draw inspiration from her are disappointed, feeling they've lost a spiritual leader. When Janice had spoken of the strength she had as an afflicted person, her message was rare, but now that she's eyeless, her message is commonplace. She doesn't worry about the reduction in her audience, though, because she has complete conviction in what she evangelizes. Ethan quit his job and became a preacher so that he, too, could speak about his experiences. His wife, Claire, couldn't accept his new mission and ultimately left him, taking their children with her, but Ethan was willing to continue alone. He's developed a substantial following by telling people what happened to Neil Fisk. He tells people that they can no more expect justice in the afterlife than in the mortal plane, but he doesn't do this to dissuade them from worshiping God. On the contrary, he encourages them to do so. What he insists on is that they not love God under a misapprehension, that if they wish to love God, they be prepared to do so no matter what his intentions. God is not just, God is not kind, God is not merciful, and understanding that is essential to true devotion. As for Neil, although he is unaware of any of Ethan's sermons, he would understand their message perfectly. His lost soul is the embodiment of Ethan's teachings. For most of its inhabitants, hell is not that different from earth. Its principal punishment is the regret of not having loved God enough when alive, and for many that's easily endured. For Neil, however, hell bears no resemblance whatsoever to the mortal plane. His eternal body has well-formed legs, but he's scarcely aware of them. His eyes have been restored, but he can't bear to open them. Just as seeing heaven's light gave him an awareness of God's presence in all things in the mortal plane, so it has made him aware of God's absence in all things in hell. Everything Neil sees, hears, or touches causes him distress, and unlike in the mortal plane, this pain is not a form of God's love, but a consequence of his absence. Neil is experiencing more anguish than was possible when he was alive, but his only response is to love God. Neil still loves Sarah and misses her as much as he ever did, and the knowledge that he came so close to rejoining her only makes it worse. He knows his being sent to hell was not a result of anything he did. He knows there was no reason for it, no higher purpose being served. None of this diminishes his love for God. If there were a possibility that he could be admitted to heaven and his suffering would end, he would not hope for it. Such desires no longer occur to him. Neil even knows that being beyond God's awareness, he is not loved by God in return. This doesn't affect his feelings either, because unconditional love asks nothing, not even that it be returned. And though it's been many years that he has been in hell, beyond the awareness of God, he loves him still. That is the nature of true devotion. Whether you loved or hated today's story, we hope you'll keep checking out more audio fiction. 
Audible.com is the Internet's leading provider of spoken audio entertainment, providing digital versions of tens of thousands of audiobooks that you can download to your personal computer or MP3 player. Listen any when, anywhere. Audible has over 40,000 titles representing every genre, including 1,000 science and technology books and 1,100 science fiction and fantasy titles. Audible has been kind enough to offer a free audiobook to podcast listeners who sign up at audiblepodcast.com slash castle today. If I were to pick up something from Audible today, I'd grab Wicked by Gregory Maguire. This is one of my favorite books, a tale of ostracism and social revolution that transforms the landscape of L. Frank Baum's Oz. Again, that website is audiblepodcast.com slash castle. Sign up and get your free audiobook today. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Oscar Wilde said, We are each our own devil, and we make this world our hell. <laughs> <laughs>